Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Christina Walbrecht and Kevin Corder, and they're going to talk to me about A Century of Votes for Women, American Elections Since Suffrage. This book was recently published by Cambridge University Press and is an overview of 100 years of women in um, the American electorate um, with regard to the 19th Amendment. But I'm going to let Christina and Kevin tell us all about this amazing book that really does a great job tracing out um, women in electoral politics. Um, first, I'd like to introduce Christina Walbrecht and Kevin Corder and ask them to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to write this fabulous book. Uh, so I'm Christina Walbrecht. Um, I'm professor of political science and director of the Rooney Center for the Study of American Democracy at Notre Dame. And I will let Kevin introduce himself before I, I tell our long story. Hi, I'm Kevin Corder. I'm in the political science department at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. So this book is actually the product of about uh, 20 years or more um, of collaboration. So Kevin and I were graduate students together in the 90s at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, And Kevin's first job was at Western Michigan and mine was here at Notre Dame, which is about a 90 minute drive between the two of them. Um, And so really early on in around uh, 98, 99, uh, Kevin and I had both learned about new approaches to ecological inference when we were in graduate school and Gary King's book had just come out. Uh, And so I called up Kevin and I said, boy, it would be really great if we could apply those methods uh, to thinking about how women voted immediately after suffrage. There's no polls or no reliable polls in the 20s and 30s. And of course, men and women don't put blue and pink uh, ballots into ballot boxes. So we really didn't know much about that. Um, That ended up taking us um, a good 16, 17 years, um, gathering historic election data, wrestling with really new uh, and challenging methods. Um, But eventually that turned into our first book together, Counting Women's Ballots. And as we talk about in the acknowledgements to this more recent book, um, we were all done and I had printed out the, the, uh, that book manuscript for the last time to do my last read through. And on the last page, I sort of had this idea like, boy, we, we used to joke about coming up on a centennial, but now here we are and it's about five years away. And there's no one place that sort of tells the story of women voters from the 20s all the way through until the 21st century. And we now know uh, something about how women voted in the first decades. And we know what all this data is for the the rest of the period. And so how about if we wrote a book really really designed for the centennial to tell that story? Um, And I don't know why Kevin agreed to do this again, (laughs) but he did. And, yeah, and, I, and go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that uh, motivated us to pursue this was we had read a lot of the scholarship or all yeah. of it from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s on women's voting. And we could see both how um, it relied on a lot of stereotype and anecdote and wasn't kind of grounded in what we had found or what you could have found if you looked at if you had data at the time. So we realized that it was going to be kind of interesting to progress and see, well, exactly how much was that con- contemporary work in the 50s, 60s, 70s rooted in anything real and how much was it just influenced by the early anecdotes. Uh, and it was a, the, the first project was technically challenging and it took 16 years to collect the data and the technology changed. But once we had that, our first cut of data for the first 20 years, it was a pretty straightforward choice to go ahead and push through the last 80 years. 
And so you've produced this great book that really does a couple of different things that I found really fascinating and useful, particularly I, I do my own work in, in questions of gender and politics. Um, but you sort of combine this sort of tracing in American political development along with a lot of quantitative information that, as you say, you'd accumulated for the previous book. Um, so I just wanted to ask you a little bit about sort of what this book sort of intends to to do in terms of laying out a hundred years of women as voters? So I, I think we had a couple of goals. Um, one is, is simply to tell that story that, that there would be one place that if you wanted to know how women's turnout looked across American history, a dip, what did it look like in the fifties? What did it look like in the seventies? Um, and I should say not just women, but uh, looking at different groups of women, women of color, uh, women with less or more education, et cetera, that you would have sort of a source for that. And then the same thing was sort of vote choice. Um, what can we sort of say and how can we understand the extent to which at any point in time, women's choice of parties and candidates was different or the same as men's? As Kevin suggested, we were also interested in um, how women voters were viewed and understood by politicians, by the press, and by scholars. Um, when we looked at the 20s and 30s, there's all this conventional wisdom that sounds very confident. And one of the things we talk about in, in our first book is that was based on almost no empirical evidence. Well, you get into the 40s and 50s and you start to have surveys and you start to have empirical evidence. But what we observed, as Kevin said, is there still is this disconnect between how we talk about voters and how women voters actually behave. And we argue in the book that continues across this 100-year period. We're talking about soccer moms and white women voting for Donald Trump. Um, and there's still sort of a, a disconnect between what we know empirically and the way that we tend to stereotype uh, women voters. Yeah, I, th I think that, that captures it. Um, we were really interested in kind of matching up um, well, this idea that, look, most people's idea about how women vote comes from reading the newspaper or comes from journalistic accounts. Um, a smaller subset of people actually look at the scholarship and even smaller subset look at the data. So we were kind of interested in reconciling that. How, how are all those things working together um, and how are people updating their scholarship and how are journalists updating their work as we learn actually what happened as women voted? And it's important to say that this is politically consequential. If, if our if our main rhetoric, if the way that politicians and the press think about women voters is as soccer moms, then they're going to focus on the interests of that mythical group. They're going to think about suburban white women with children and the policies that might matter to them and the appeals that might be effective for them. Um, that's a very, very small part of the female electorate. And that means that if we're focused on soccer moms, we're not talking about other kinds of women, single women women with grown children, retired women, women on welfare. Um, and so that, that we think is, is important to, to really highlight that distinction. And that, of course, comes to the, the third really main focus of the book, is that women are diverse. There is no one women voter. Um, and that understanding um, the diversity of women and their political interests and identities um, is absolutely uh, necessary. And this is one of the distinctions that you make early in the book is also considering the woman voter um, in comparison to the voter, which is, as you point out, also 
the male voter. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about how we sort of capture and characterize this way of thinking about women voters with the modifier on the voter? Yeah, this is a really important point, And there's a reason why it's so early on in the book. Um, when we talk about women voters and to understand women voters as distinct, we have to compare them to something, right? To just say women vote X or Y isn't really that interesting if if all we can say is, and that's exactly the same way that men vote. And so the first thing I, I, I will say empirically is it's important to say overall, women's turnout and vote choice is extremely similar to men's. Where men's turnout is high, so is women's turnout. Where uh, when men become more likely to vote Democratic, so do women. The challenge becomes when it's just when we're not just trying to see are there any male female differences, and so we're going to compare men and women. But when men become the ideal or the norm, right? And even the way I just said that, where men vote Republican, so do women, sort of suggests that women just follow along with men, which there's not a whole lot of reason to believe that's that's necessarily the case. Um, the problem with the male ideal, then, if we if we see men as the norm, the normal way that voters behave, um, is that we judge women by that sort of standard um, in in ways that are pretty problematic. Uh, we use the example in the book. It's one of my favorites from a, a very early uh, piece uh, on women's political behavior um, that points out that in the classic voting studies of the 40s and the 50s, there's a lot of talk about how women do not have enough personal efficacy. If you ask them, um, can individuals affect and change politics? Can you affect and change politics? They're less likely to say yes than men. And we know that people who feel more personally efficacious are more likely to be politically active. And so the explanation for why women are less likely to turn out to vote or be politically active rests a lot in those classic accounts on efficacy. It's not until the 70s when, it's not a coincidence, you start to have more women political scientists looking at these same data that, that women said, instead of asking what's wrong with women, given that it actually is pretty hard for any one person to affect politics or to really make a difference, why aren't we asking why men have such an inflated sense of their own capacity, right? Why is the assumption that men have it right and women have it wrong? Maybe men just think they can do a lot of stuff they can't really do. And so we try to, in the book, when we make these comparatives, when we talk about differences between men and women, not to assume or not to act as if the male behavior was the norm against which we should judge women. Yeah. And you, you saw that when uh, women first got the right to vote, women turned out at, at a l much lower rate than men. And the fallback kind of story about that was, well, women just aren't interested in politics. They're kind of inherently incapable of engaging. So this, this shouldn't have come as a real surprise. And of course, suffrage is a total failure. But then in 1980, when women's turnout surpassed men's turnout, you did not see any stories that said, oh, men are inherently incapable of engaging with politics. They're failures. Why did we give suffrage to men in the first place? So you don't see the flip side story come out at all. And that's also what I really um, found useful in your research is sort of pushing through some of these um, anticipated conclusions um, to get at the the actual data with regard to 
how women participate as voters in the electorate, as opposed to what some of the perceptions are. Um, And I wanted to ask you a little bit about, again, sort of defining questions within the book itself. Right at the beginning, you talk about this question of biological sex versus gender and how you're sort of casting the discussion. Um, And I was interested if you could talk a little bit about um, how you sort of thought through this, as well as the fact that you talk about women as a social grouping. Um, So if you could sort of respond to that. So this is, you know, a long standing debate. And there are many fields in which this, you know, gets and and merits a a great deal of of discussion. Um, For a long time, I think the sort of easy categorization was sex is um, the biological categorization, XY chromosomes, those sorts of things. And gender is the social meaning that we give to sex. Um, it's it's uh, conceptions of femininity and masculinity, about hierarchies, about, um, you know, family structures, those sorts of things. Those are all gender and they're sort of distinct from biological sex. Without going into too much detail, I think lots of smart people have challenged that idea that we can sort of divorce the two entirely. This this thing is just biological and this thing is um, sort of socially constructed. Um, in, in our book, um, we want to acknowledge that. We want to realize that a lot of times when we talk about how men and women are different, what we really mean is that people with more masculine traits are different than people with more feminine traits. Um, and there's been some really great work. Um, uh, I'm thinking of Monica McDermott here in particular, um, that have showed that a lot of differences between men and women are actually differences between people with a lot of feminine traits and those with a lot of masculine traits. And those somewhat map on to male and female. On average, men are more likely to have these masculine traits and women are more likely to have these feminine traits, but not entirely. Both men and women have masculine traits, both men and women have feminine traits, and there are certainly men with more feminine and women with more masculine. Um, so we want to acknowledge all of that. In our data, what we really have is self-reported sex, right? People are asked, are you male or female? Um, and, and certainly it's, it's important to say that is, uh, across the 100 years we've, that we've studied, how people self-identify is going to change as well. Um, we're mostly falling back onto uh, just those self-identifications, and of course, how people are identified in groups. We use the phrase gender um, for for several reasons. Um, one is that, as you said, um, we're thinking about gender as a social grouping that there that we can make some meaning of women politically, and that that we know we're studying a political phenomenon where women's interests are defined and debated, and and competed over, right? What is women's interests in abortion policy? What is women's interest in equal pay? Women themselves have disagreed about these things. So they're, they're politically contested. We, so one is to use gender to sort of recognize that social grouping. The other is frankly, um, to go with the language of the time. So language defines our, our meaning and meaning defines our language. Um, in 1981, with Ronald Reagan winning the presidential election, with the ERA under uh, uh, attack, um, feminist activists uh, now wanted to put together a presentation 
uh, for the Democratic National Committee and to show them that women voted differently and that they were politically powerful. And they showed that the percent of women who voted for Ronald Reagan was lower than the percentage of men who voted for Ronald Reagan. And they called that difference the gender gap. We think of that as a very common phrase now. We show in the book that it almost did not exist prior to 1981, but that has become the dominant way to talk about uh, politically relevant differences between men and women. And I guess we should say not just politically relevant differences, all sorts of differences. And so we use that language in the book. Yeah, and it's really useful for just redirecting attention away from biological differences, which may be important in medicine and other contexts, to social differences and differences in norms and expectations, which we think are going to really matter. And and so I wanted to follow that up again with sort of the the way that you broadly pulled together the book in terms of these understandings of different orders that <clears throat> excuse me that essentially frame the way that you're talking about women as voters over a, uh, over a century. Um, and you talk about sort of the legal order um, and the gender order. Can you explain how you use these ideas in terms of framing the various discussions and threads throughout the chapters of this book? So uh, we wanted to think about history, the piece of history, pretty systematically. We didn't just want to say we're going to throw these periods together and talk about them, or we're going to just talk about women over the whole period. We wanted to recognize um, these different um, uh, periods or or different, we use the word order, uh, different, um, I'll just say periods again, uh, in American history. And so one we wanted to look at was a simple, simply the legal order. And what we meant by that is sort of what what is the state of the law in terms of gender and in terms of women? And so we can think of the ratification of the 19th Amendment as bringing about a new legal order in which um, uh, you cannot discriminate in voting rights on the basis of sex. You can think of a new uh, that legal order being shifted again in 1965 with the passage of the Voting Rights Act that is going to make um, access to the ballot a real thing. Uh, for African-Americans uh, in the South, and of course, particularly for us, for African-American women. And so recognizing that in the 20s and the 30s, in that legal order, there's this constitutional amendment, and yet there's Jim Crow and um, uh, polling taxes and uh, literacy tests, not only in the South, but against immigrants in the Northeast, for example, is important if you're going to understand how women voted. You're going to you're going to see that in some places that right was very real and and something women could access. Um, but in some places in the South and in the Northeast, that reality was more complicated. And so we have to be aware of the legal context in which women are voting if we're going to understand that data that we're going to then look at. We also talk about the gender uh, order or the gender context. So women get the right to vote. Uh, or the 19th Amendment is ratified in 1920. This is huge. This is recognizing women as independent political actors. That matters a great deal. But there's nothing particularly in the 19th Amendment that says we're going to disrupt the traditional family structure, which is very hierarchical and where the, the husband has the power, economic, political, et cetera, and the wife has less of that power. 
we are not going to disrupt um, the gender order in employment where um, there are very few uh, jobs outside of the household that women can do. And most of those are done by poor women and women of color, right? So to understand how women voted in the 20s and the 30s, you have to understand the gender order. You have to understand that most women still lacked a great deal of autonomy and power within their own homes. And that's going to translate into political power as well. They also lack a lot of economic power, also going to translate into how they can have economic power. Um, and the last is, of course, the electoral, uh, the, we talk about the electoral order, just sort of what that period looks like in terms of women's own uh, behavior um, and capacity. So in some periods, women's turnout is very high relative to men's. In some periods, it's low, et cetera. And so we think in order to understand women's actual electoral behavior in any one period, it's really important to look at the, the, the the period and the legal order of the period. So to understand the 50s as a period of sort of reinforced gender norms and the feminine mystique and to understand the 70s as this period of huge challenge uh, to women's traditional roles and a huge explosion of women entering the paid workforce. Those, those things absolutely shape women's behavior. And as American political development scholars tell us, there's often conflict between these orders, right? So mm. legally, women get the right to vote, but in the gender order, they're still in these traditional arrangements. And so watching those tensions over time helps understand women's voting as well. Yeah, and, and I think it helps to think about those orders as moving kind of in, in, in the same direction, but at different rates. So you get the abrupt change in the legal order, but it takes a long time for the gender order to change. And it takes longer for both of those to spill over into political behavior. Uh, one of the things we noticed in the 60s and 70s, we saw remarkable, you know, radical changes in the gender order, but almost no changes in, in political behavior. But you see that later in the 1980s. So you see shifts in one order that translate decades later into shifts in another. And I wanted to ask you also, as you are tracing this sort of shift and change, these shifts and changes, um, you also talk about uh, the broader cultural context of Republican motherhood um, and a lot of the kind of understanding of the quote women's role and how that is working in tension in lots of ways but also continues to sort of frame how we understand women voters so republican motherhood um is this concept that is it's not a party concept uh, but rather dates to the founding um and and really the work of historian linda kerber who wanted to understand how in a, in a newly formed country based on the consent of the governed, what was women's place, right? So it they were citizens, but they weren't voters. Um, how do we sort of understand the place of women? And, and what she found, and many others have, have found as well, is, is this concept of Republican motherhood, that the job of women in a, a democratic republic, republic like the United States was to provide this moral and ethical support for their husbands and for their sons. They were supposed to um, imbue their sons with ethics and, and morality so that when they went out and became citizens, voters, soldiers, that they would have these important normative um, sort of foundations to do that. 
Um, politics was understood as dirty and corrupt. And so the job of women for their husbands was to create the sort of escape from that, to be, again, sort of a moral and ethical guide for them, um, that, the, that the home would be this sort of pure, unvarnished place where you could escape from the dirty reality of politics and economic life. And that, again, women who weren't themselves corrupted by politics could be this moral support and moral guide to their husbands and their sons. That might sound a little strange to us today, but one of the things we try to argue in the book is that so many of those fundamental conceptions of women's place in politics survive to 2020. That when we talk about women legislators or women voters being above the fray or more collaborative or um, less likely to be corrupted, um, that really we're hearkening back to those Republican motherhood ideas. When we, when there are chance to lock her up to Hillary Clinton, there are echoes of this idea that when women are perceived as corrupt, it's somehow worse. Like this is not what women are supposed to do. That's not their role in politics. Um, when we talk about soccer moms, when we talk about women caring more about education, not wanting to send their sons to war, we're still using these ideas that that motherhood is the main way in which women relate to politics. And it's the main way that their political interests are understood. Now, those could be the right or wrong way to think about women voters, but it's important to see that those are really long-standing ideas that are informed by assumptions and stereotypes as much as anything else. Yeah, and I would add that some of the expectations of the impact of suffrage in the 1920s were also rooted in that. I mean, there was this feeling that the introduction of women voters was going to upend politics because they were women were going to bring a whole bunch of new interests, mainly progressive, related to temperance and other things, and that was going to be very disruptive. And so that was another uh, leg of the argument that suffrage was a failure, that the introduction of women didn't really disrupt the two-party monopoly. But those expectations of big differences between men and women voters in the 20s was grounded in that idea of a Republican motherhood and the uh, particular interests of women. And so you trace through this data that you've accumulated over the past 20 years as well for other works, what the differences are that we start to see um, with regard to women voters. And as, as you've already sort of made clear, and as many of us know, women don't all think the same or vote the same. And obviously there's a diversity of interests. Um, but what can you talk about in terms of things that may have surprised you as you were going through the research and looking at sort of women in being introduced into the political system as voters and how that shifted and changed over the course of a hundred years? I'm going to let Kevin take this one to start. Sure. I, I think, uh, one of the surprising things that came out of the work was that, women don't typically support third-party candidates. Um, we found that in the first book. And then, of course, if you look at more recent survey data, it reinforces that. But that completely goes against the idea going in that women were going to upend the two-party monopoly and we were going to have very disruptive politics with women were introduced. We found just the opposite, right? That women actually stabilized the electorate in ways that were totally unanticipated. Um, and I'm still puzzled by that today, why it is the case even today that uh, third party candidates just don't look as attractive to uh, female voters as to, to men. 
The other surprise that a lot of people that political scientists realize, but that that always comes up as kind of interesting, is that women were on balance uh, as a group. If you can talk about women as a group, more Republican in the 1950s than men. And that that was driven by uh, women who were out of the labor force, that women who stayed at home were were largely Republican. And uh, that goes away in the 60s and 70s. But that was uh, kind of a surprise. I guess the other one I would talk about is that we really did see exceptionally high turnout from women in the early elections in some states that were competitive and had relatively less restrictive electoral rules. I mean, you got turnout in some states up 45, 50% for women in those early elections. So the idea that women were not going to take up the right to vote, um, you know, you can just uh, get rid of that idea by looking at a few of those early states where you saw really high turnout. So those were just a couple of the surprises that came out, both of the early research and that we uh, carried over into the later decades. Yeah, I would I would agree with Kevin. Absolutely. I think that the other one I thought of is Kevin was talking about the 20s and 30s is when we look at the classic voting studies um, of the 50s and, and going into the 60s, 40s and 50s, there's a lot of talk about women not being political, that they're inherently not. They leave it to the husbands, et cetera. But even by 1960, the, the difference in turnout between men and women is less than 10 points. Right. You've still got women in the in the electorate. Um, eligible electorate who had been come of political age before suffrage, um, and and yet women have now come within a few points of the uh, of men. And so, again, I think to remind people that there was a lot of trying to explain something that maybe didn't need quite so much explaining um, uh, comes out as well. And then the other one, I guess, I'll I'll remind people of that. I it will be no surprise to, to you, Lily, and to other scholars of women in politics, but to reinforce again that. Uh, yes, in 1980, that's the first really sort of dramatic um, uh, gender gap that's clearly um, statistically significant. And that happens to be the first year, of course, in which Dem- Democrats become the clearly pro-choice party. Republicans become the clearly pro-life party. They also split on the Equal Rights Amendment and other sorts of issues. And so forever, and to this day, commentators uh assume that the gender gap is driven by those sorts of women's issues, by equal pay, by sexual harassment. We see that today, right, with the assumption um, that women's gender and and their reaction to, to Donald Trump and the things he said about women and the things he's been credibly accused of doing to women um, should lead women to abandon uh, the Republican Party and, and vote Democratic. We know, however, that men and women are actually not that different in their views about um, uh, things like abortion and the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, And even if women prioritize those things higher, um, there are still other considerations, race, class, um, uh, religion, that are going to swamp those sorts of considerations when it comes to vote choice. And so um, it's possible for women's vote choice to be both gendered and shaped by their gender, but not necessarily driven by these sort of specific women's interests. And I wanted to ask a little bit more about these these other issues that you're um, highlighting, the questions of race, class, religion, but also as you sort of acknowledge throughout the book, questions of education, employment, um, and family structure are also relevant in thinking about how women enter the political scene and how they operate within it. 
so of course, um, race and class are in, incredibly important and and key identities and interests in American politics. Um, and, and this is where we just have to be able to put two things in our head at once. So um, on average, for 50 years now, uh, white women are, are uh, on average more likely to vote Republican than Democratic, usually around 60%. Um, and black women are overwhelmingly more likely to vote Democratic. So the difference between white women and black women is enormous uh, in terms of their vote choice. At the same time, while, say, 60% of white women may identify as Republican, 70% of white men identify as Republican. So compared to white men, white women are more Democratic. They are less Republican. And the same is true among uh, the African-American community, where Black women are Democratic, overwhelmingly, so are Black men. But there's a gap there as well, where Black men are just a little more Republican, by which I mean they're 85% Democratic, where Black women may be 95% Democratic. And so keeping those two things in your head at the same time, that there can be gender differences um, across groups, while still group differences like race are, are large, um, is really necessary to understanding uh, women voters. Yeah, I think that captures it. Um, you know, we we make pains in the book to to differentiate between different types of women and show that across a bunch of different categories: geography, education, race, family status. Uh, in the last chapter, in particular, we pick up the idea that women are more democratic, and those differences persist across a bunch of different groups. Uh, but the differences within the groups are larger than dif- differences across the groups, race, educational categories are always much larger than the dif- gender differences uh, within any particular category. And this also gets to the historical periodization. The way that these different identities or interests work does differ over time. So we're in a period now where um, women with and without college education are have become, even in just the last presidential election, um, pretty pretty broad and, and pretty wide. They're there, um, certainly uh, uh, for women in the 40s and the 50s, but not in the same way or to the same degree. The same thing about uh, whether or not you're married, whether or not you're employed, um, whether or not you're employed has a huge uh, effect on uh, the parties that women support in the 1940s and the 50s, and less of a, of a, of a factor in the 60s and the 70s. And so um, not only is there not just one woman voter, but of course, who women voters are, and how that maps onto political interests is going to shift over time as well. Yeah. And the, so the effects of everything that we look at, education, marriage, race, they really vary depending on the period because there's different parties, different alternatives, different contexts. And so there's no kind of effect of education or effect of among women or men. It really depends on the period. And that's what uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you a little bit more, specifically diving into some of the data, is this question of married and unmarried and family structure, because the family structure also is a mirror onto that concept, the original concept that you were talking about with regard to Republican motherhood. And so I wanted to ask a bit about what what you saw with regard to understanding the sort of role of the family and how that itself has changed over time in the last hundred years and how that has impacted women as voters. So this question gets at a real um, 
challenge that we faced in the book and, and something we wanted to make as clear as we could, which is that not only do you have these different kinds of groups of women, married, unmarried, with children, without children, but of course, the distribution of those characteristics and what they mean is changing over this hundred year period as well. So it's not just that women are voters, this is women are voters at a time of about as much gender change uh, in, in family structure, in roles, et cetera, as, as we've seen um, throughout history. And so um, when we look at women who work outside the household in the 40s and 50s, we're mostly looking at poor women and women of color um, uh, who work in factories or in homes, uh, domestic service, those sorts of things. When we look at women who are working in the 90s and the 2000s, of course, that's that's a very different distribution. That that population is going to look much different. It's much bigger. It's more diverse. Um, really, class stops being a distinction about whether or not women work in the 70s and the 80s. And so you you sort of have to con- think about all those things happening at the same time. What is what is a woman who's who is a woman who stays home at any particular period? And how does that sort of map on to other sorts of considerations? Um, to be, you know, the percentage of, of, of households that are single mothers um, is going to change dramatically in the last 30, 40 years. And, and what that means for, um, for other characteristics like social class, um, et cetera. And so those characteristics and those experiences have to be understood within that specific political moment and um, within sort of broader demographic changes. Yeah, and I, I think it would surprise most people to understand that the effect of marriage, for instance, in the 40s and 50s, was to make women and men voters more democratic. Single women were among the highest Republican vote supporters in the 50s and 60s. That's entirely opposite today. Today, the effect marriage men and women who are married are more likely to vote Republican. So, I mean, the direction of the effect changes in the period. And uh, so there's not just today we would always think of married people being more Republican, but it was just the opposite in the 40s and 50s. And so in in regard to sort of some of these changes that you've seen over time, and I know that the book has come out and the anniversary of the 19th Amendment, um, can you talk a little bit about just that particular idea of looking back a hundred years um, to the 19th amendment um, and, and sort of how I know you've, you've done a couple interviews um, with a variety of different sources um, on this concept of like the anniversary itself and, and how we maybe should be thinking about the sort of introduction or full citizenship of women in the United States. So my my favorite slogan of all the Centennial organizations is um, in, in Iowa. There's this hard one, not done, um, and I really like that. I think the Centennial is an opportunity to remind ourselves that voting rights um, have never been universal. Um, that that every expansion of voting rights has been contested. That women were not given the vote; they fought for it. They died for it. Uh, they gave their lives for it, um, and that the that the course of voting rights is has never been straightforward. That voting rights are granted and then they're taken back, um, 
that we get past polling taxes uh, and literacy tests, but then we decide to disenfranchise uh, felons or we eliminate voting places so it's harder to get there or we introduce ID laws that uh, keep some people from the ballot box, etc. Um, it's also the case that as long as you're fighting for voting rights and just to help get people to the polls, you're not fighting for other things. And so continued contestation over voting rights means that groups that want to um, advance the interests of people of color or women or Latinos or whoever else that might be have to put a lot of energy into just making sure people can get to the polls and, and not into other things they might care about. And so Kevin and I have written elsewhere about uh, the United States, as other legal scholars have pointed out, does not have an affirmative right to vote, that it's up to the people then to, to get themselves to polling places, et cetera. And that seems to us to, to remain sort of a, a struggle uh, for our democratic system. Yeah, that's one of the lessons we took away from the 20s, that uh, it was kind of re- actually kind of remarkable how many women were incorporated into the electorate so rapidly without the benefit of all the mobilizing institutions that already were used to working with men, everything from parties to unions. And you know, it, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy and time to convert that right into an actual vote. And as long as people are fighting to convert the right into a vote, it does divert their energy from focusing on other issues that that groups with lots of already well-mobilized voters don't have to worry about. And so given that you've now written a couple books on women as voters, Kevin and Christina, what are you working on now? I'm going to let Kevin go first. I don't know if you heard, but we're teaching online. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. Some of us are doing that, or at least we're trying. (laughs) So that's all I'm doing. (laughs) I, I, yes, this is, uh, yes, but I'll, I'll start with that. Um, people have asked if we're going to write another book. I think Kevin and I are going to go to the beach. Um, uh, the, the, I, I always like to joke that, uh, I appreciate Kevin as a co-author in so many ways. And one of them is that he owns a house very close to Lake Michigan. Um, uh, so we really pushed this one, uh, to get done for the centennial, we expected right now, instead of online classes, that we would be talking about the centennial um, all over the country. Um, and we're really happy to have things like this podcast as an opportunity to still have those conversations um, at this really unprecedented unprecedented time. And yeah, I, appreciate- I think as it gets closer to the, uh, I think as it gets closer to the actual anniversary ratification, there's going to be uh, there's going to be more interest, and people are going to want to reflect more on what that actually meant. And, and I'm glad that you were able to come on the podcast because we are all socially distant from one another um, as we are across a number of states having this conversation. <laughs> um, but should you do some more research on this topic, I'd love to talk to you about your next book, should that happen. Um, so I was wondering where one can get a hold of uh, a century of votes for women. I assume at the Cambridge University Press website and any favorite brick and mortar stores that you can order from these days. So I'm going to, I'm going to put a, a, a little post in for my favorite local bookstore owned by my friend, Kathy Burnett called the brain, brain layer books. Uh, maybe when this goes out, I'll, I'll share a link. She's part of bookshop.org. If you order your books through bookshop.org, um, they're a, a, a network of independent booksellers and um, all of the profits are shared with all of those independent booksellers 
if you specifically go through Brain Lair books, um, my friend Kathy and her wonderful store here in South Bend uh, gets a, an extra bit of, of the profit. And, and honestly, uh, if you were to right now, um, <clears throat> they're no slower than Amazon these days. So um, I might as well support independent bookstores. Uh, so thank you, Kevin Corder and Christina Walbrecht, for joining me today to talk about A Century of Votes for Women, American Elections Since Suffrage. This is published by Cambridge University Press, and it is a really fantastic tour of an understanding of women as voters in the electorate. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.